Welcome to uh, uh, all those who are guests here at uh, Congregation B'nai Tzedek, and uh, hi to all those who are members. I'm uh, Rabbi Steve Einstein, and I have a, a long association with this uh, congregation. And I'm going to offer a very brief introduction of our speaker, uh, because you came to hear him, not to hear the introduction. Uh, very interestingly, uh, Rabbi Ruderman and I are classmates. Uh, however, we didn't know each other. And the reason is because we are both uh, graduates of the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, which has campuses in Cincinnati, New York, Los Angeles, and Jerusalem. In 1971, uh, Rabbi Ruderman was ordained at the New York School, and I was ordained at the Cincinnati School. Today, all the students know each other because they begin together in Jerusalem. But way back in our day, that was not yet the case. Uh, however, I've been following uh, Dr. Ruderman's career through the years, and as a, um, a member of the board of CSP, when we were looking at uh, who we might invite uh, to be the month-long scholar this year, and uh, Rabbi Ruderman's name came up, I could give a, a hearty uh, recommendation. And some of you who are here, members of, of uh, B'nai Tzedek, have studied with uh, Dr. Ruderman, but not face-to-face. Uh, we had a, a distance learning experience with him that proved very, very wonderful. So I will just say he is uh, one of the preeminent uh, historians of Judaism living today uh, with a very distinguished career that you can read about, but you came to learn from him, so I'm happy to welcome him here. Uh, where's Faith? Did she stepped out? All right, will you make sure Faith gets her book? Um, good. Uh, thank you so much, Rabbi Einstein. It's, it's really uh, wonderful to be introduced by a familiar face. I, I did meet him subsequently, although we didn't meet in 1971. Um, and he turns out to be younger than me, so I mean, let's point that out. You know. uh, at this point, that's a compliment. Uh, so I feel like I'm ready to do a recital with this particular uh, lectern, and I can't lean on it, obviously. So let me just get comfortable. Um, so um, some of you I, who I recognize have been uh, hearing me uh, for a while already. Uh, uh, it's amazing you come back so often. And those of you that have not, that are members of B'nai Tzedek, uh, it's nice to see you for the first time. But I just heard that uh, you were listening to my tapes for the great uh, courses, the, the teaching company. Uh, and I hope um, I don't look much older than those tapes because they were made about 10, 12 years ago. And there's an even earlier course that I did uh, about 15 years ago. And it's quite remarkable. People keep buying them over the years. Uh, I sold. You know, I, I've written nine books, and the most I ever sold was two, three thousand books. Uh, actually, that early modern jury book that I just. Uh, but these tapes, as I, I have, I've stopped counting, but I, at, at thirty-five thousand. Uh, so you know, people obviously don't read anymore or read as much as. Uh, <laughs> uh, so the tapes are, are really a good thing to have, and and they, of course, the technology has kept up with this. But it's quite remarkable, you know, you, you, I'm still giving these courses at Penn. I'm still hanging on uh, because I love to teach. Um, but, um, you know, these are my, my last years of teaching in there, and it's just wonderful 
to, to find I have the stamina to give 21 lectures this month. And they cut it down from 25 because of my age, you know. Uh, but I still feel, so this is number 18. What is unique about this lecture, and I saved it for B'nai Tzedek, uh, it wasn't originally on. Ari took it off. Um, what I had done is uh, the, the, the lecture series were based on clusters. In other words, I took a theme and I followed it through. So for example, uh, tomorrow night I'm in Newport Beach at Bat Yam, and there I'm finishing a lecture a series on the messianic impulse in Jewish history. Um, and tomorrow uh, at lunch, another course, I'm finishing uh, a series on great debates in Jewish history. Uh, and that one is on three Zionist visions. Um, and actually, those two lectures are somehow connected a little bit with this lecture, so you'll see uh, if any of you come back to any of those, uh, you might see some connection. But this lecture stands on its own. And I insisted on putting it back because it is one of my favorite subjects. Uh, and even though it did not belong necessarily within the framework of, uh, of any of the, of the themes or the sub-themes that I chose, uh, I, I wanted to give it. Um, and, uh, and therefore, uh, I am. Um, it is part of a course that I give on modern Jewish thought, which is actually one of the tapes on the, in the teaching company. I think it's the one you did not hear. Um, oh, I don't have to take it off because I can see the, the clock from here. Okay. Um, and uh, it deals with the philosophy of Martin Buber. Um, one way of describing this course, you'll forgive me for the bad joke, uh, this is my Bubermises. <laughs> uh, but it's really not Bubermises at all, as you will see. Um, it's a thinker that, uh, the rabbi didn't have the experience of studying with Gene Borowitz, correct? So um, I first studied, um, 20th century Jewish thought. I had studied a lot of Jewish thought before I came to HUC. Um, uh, but I remember taking Gene Borowitz's first course. Gene Borowitz was uh, one of the great theologians and philosophers of the reform movement. Uh, and he recently died, uh, lived a very long life, and uh, taught right up until the end. Um, and this course uh, was very challenging. I just have to tell you this. I, I, to warm up, I got to tell myself a joke. So you'll forgive me if I, I don't get started right away. Um, so um, I remember taking this course, uh, and I had come from a Zionist youth movement, uh, very secular, uh, very uh, not uh, not atheistic, but certainly agnostic. Uh, and I remember writing these learned papers because I knew Hebrew better than all the students in the class, and I had been spent a lot of time in Israel, and I had done my masters <coughs> with Gershon Cohen at Columbia. Uh, and I was sitting in this course, you know, looking down upon everybody with my, you know, so-called, so uh, you know, a phony sense of arrogance. Anyway, I wrote a paper for uh, Gene Borowitz uh, in which I talked, I professed my own agnosticism, and he gave me an F. Wow, that, I never got an F in my life. So, um, you know, I recovered, and then I wrote a second paper for him in which I talked about the possibility of faith. And he gave me a C minus. I was making progress. <laughs> the third paper was on Buber, and I talked about my love of Buber. I got an A plus. So you know how Borowitz worked. Anyway, I, so, but I, I, he kind of convinced me that this thinker has something to say. He was very much a Buberian uh, and left its impact. And of course, other thinkers in the pantheon of Jewish thinkers have emerged in more recent years. I think of. Levinas, I think of some of the Orthodox Jewish thinkers, 
Uh, I did lecture um, in another uh, setting here on uh, Mordechai Kaplan and Abraham Joshua Heschel. So I did those two lectures <coughs> as part of the debate series. Uh, but Buber deserved to be described to you uh, and my love, which doesn't only come from Borowitz, it comes from my own thinking about him and his relationship to Judaism, which, as you will see, is there very strongly, but for some, it offers some challenges and problems. Um, Jewish thought is an interesting discipline. I'm, I, I, um, I teach it to students already for, I've been teaching in universities for 45 years. Uh, and my modern Jewish thought course, I actually am an early modernist. That means I study primarily <coughs> the period from 1492 through the Enlightenment. And all my books deal with that period, except for my last book, which I'm sort of moving up. Uh, <coughs> but I always loved this material. I, I first learned it in rabbinical school, as I said. But then in my graduate years, I, I pursued it with several uh, thinkers at the Hebrew University where I studied. Um, and it sort of remained with me. So it's a kind of hobby as opposed to the academic discipline that I write in. And it's actually easier to teach your hobby than it is to teach your academic discipline <clears throat> because you know so much more about the latter. How do you distill it and make it accessible to a larger audience? Uh, but when you know less, it's much easier to be a good teacher. <clears throat> so maybe that's the part. Although I've read most of Buber and uh, there is enormous literature on him. The irony of Buber is that he is probably among the modern Jewish thinkers. If you think, uh, and I'm going to mention some of their names, at least in passing, uh, from Hermann Kohn on, uh, speaking about only 20th century Jewish thinkers. Uh, we are speaking about Leo Beck. We are speaking about uh, Mordechai Kaplan, as I mentioned, Heschel, uh, and Buber and Rosenzweig. Um, those are the classic thinkers of the 20th century. Then, of course, we could turn uh, to uh, and consider more, uh, a next generation. But clearly, I don't think anyone in that next generation has really excelled in terms of their input. One of the problems that we're now facing in terms of Jewish thought is that Jewish thought is primarily Germanic-centric. In other words, all of these guys came out of a German context. And what's going on in Eastern Europe? What's going on elsewhere? In other words, there has been an attempt in recent years, and I'm actually doing it with myself. Uh, some of you heard a, a lecture on my new material for, that I'm working on in the 19th century, and I'm actually moving more into Eastern Europe and looking at Jewish thinkers that were not as classic as these guys. But uh, even with that expansion, uh, the classic thinkers are still great, and they still offer, and, and here's I teach this undergraduate course. I just want to explain what goes on. I take kids who are, uh, you know, one of the great experiences of teaching at Penn for the last 23 years is that I'm the only reform rabbi who teaches a majority of students who are orthodox. I'm a kind of shaliach, uh, Abraham Geiger shaliach. Uh, I gave a lecture to Abraham Geiger. But I love to teach orthodox Jewish students about Abraham Geiger, the founder of reform Judaism. <clears throat> I love to talk about feminism. Um, I love to talk about uh, varieties, about Leo Beck, about other great reform rabbis. Uh, and believe it or not, they have not learned this material before. Um, and to open them up, to make them more tolerant of the Jews and to appreciate that uh, liberal or non-Orthodox forms of Judaism are as legitimate as responses to the modern world as their own without denigrating who they are and what they are is an unbelievable experience. That's the greatness of the university and the opportunity that Jewish studies offers itself. Um, 
I've been doing this and I've enjoyed it. I don't even want to give it up and I should be retiring already, but I still don't want to give it up. Um, but we are experiencing challenges. Um, I just uh, signed a petition uh, about uh, the new uh, president wanting to close down the National Institute for uh, uh, the Humanities, which is, I mean, what a disaster for me or our National Institute for Art. I hope that's only a bad rumor. Uh, the humanities are in decline, uh, and people, you know, at, uh, at Penn, the great school where everybody runs to is Wharton, you know, that's uh, President Trump's uh, alma mater. Uh, although he did not do an MBA, he just did undergraduate at Wharton. But be that as it may, um, um, that's part of the world that we live in, and what I do is to try to foster not only a love of Judaism and Jewish history, but also a love of humanities. All right, let me turn to uh, Buber. What I'm going to do is, I'm, I usually don't rely on a text. Some of you have seen me just walk around and, and just let it hang out. Uh, I, but I want to rely a little bit on Buber's own language. And therefore, I'm going to refer to my notes this time. Uh, but I'm going to depart from them, obviously, as I try to explain this thinker. I want to give you an appreciation of who he is, his experience with Judaism, uh, and his contribution to Jewish thought. And I do believe he is relevant. I do believe he speaks to our generation. Uh, and therefore, uh, for those of you who have not studied Buber in depth, I hope this will be a very meaningful introduction. In an essay that Martin Buber wrote, so Martin Buber um, lived from 1878. He died in 1965. Um, they, he was buried in Jerusalem. Um, what is very interesting about him uh, is that uh, the rumor has it that at his funeral in Jerusalem, there were hardly 10 people there, that he was extremely unpopular despite the fact that he, as I said, was probably the most well-known, famous Jewish philosopher of the 20th century, uh, in particularly in non-Jewish world. So the question is why, and I will defer that question until later. But that's, that, that's already uh, an enigma that we have to solve. But an early essay which he wrote called The Love of God and the Idea of the Deity on the subject of the philosophy of Judaism of Hermann Kohn, um, Buber records the writings of a French Catholic philosopher named Pascal. All right, I mentioned now Hermann Kohn and Pascal. I need to explain both. The Pascal scribbles lines. Let me give you that phrase. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and scholars. That's the line from Buber. Quoting Pascal in talking about Hermann Cohn. Hermann Cohn, as you will see, and I'll refer to him again later uh, in my presentation, was the Dayan of Jewish philosophy, the great figure of Jewish philosophy at the turn of the century into the 20th century in uh, Germany. He was so significant a philosopher, uh, particularly his version of neo-Kantianism. Kant, Immanuel Kant, was the dominant philosopher of the second half of the 19th century. And neo-Kantianism emerged in various schools. Um, and Hermann Kohn, uh, what we might call an idealistic philosopher, uh, was appointed to a university position at Marburg, where he was a professor almost to the end of his life, 
until he finally left to, re, to go to Berlin to teach in a Jewish school where for a few years before he died, he taught Jewish philosophy. So here's a person that comes from the general academic world, makes an enormous impression, is known throughout Germany as the great professor, and don't take for granted the idea of a Jew teaching in a 19th century university, almost unheard of, but nevertheless, given his significance, Hermann Cohn, Cohn rose to the top. I would say that in one way or the other, every 20th century Jewish thinker, as well as many Christian thinkers, were influenced by Hermann Cohn. He was an embodiment of Jewish philosophy. He was deeply committed to the rational life. He had a notion of the idea of God that can be found within philosophy. He was also a social activist, a socialist, uh, at least a, a moral socialist, if not ethical socialist, if not a, a Marxist. Uh, and he was deeply committed to the idea of the fusion between Germanism and, you, and Judaism. Jews had made it in Germany. And Jews in, in the first centuries of the 20th century were part and parcel of the culture. They had influenced German literature. They had influenced German language. They were prominent uh, philosophically, intellectually, uh, in all uh, phases of life. And they had created this remarkable uh, coagination of German values and Jewish values. And Hermann Cohn was the embodiment of that. And here, uh, and, and those who dis, uh, disagreed with uh, Hermann Cohn, like Martin Buber, like Franz Rosenzweig, uh, like the name of um, the, guy, the reform rabbi I just mentioned, Leo Beck, sorry. Uh, it happens occasionally. Uh, Leo Beck, uh, all of them had departed, had, had learned from Hermann Cohn, had been influenced by him, but were moving away. And, as, and of course, this essay does it exactly. Pascal, of course, was a 17th century philosopher, a pietist, who clearly, in, uh, we don't need to talk about his philosophy, it's very important, but nevertheless, just in that line, you can get sort of the essence, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and not the God of the philosophers and scholars. Pascal's change of heart is indicative of Buber's point of departure in understanding his position. Buber's formulation of Judaism was a reaction to an historical hour through which the world was passing. He wrote, the eclipse of heaven, the eclipse of God, the death of God, a metaphor for a more profound death, the death of the absolute in the 20th century the world had become a post-religious century. It had seen the end of religion. Rational systems of religion had attempted to enclose God within the moral, dogmatic, and ritual formula of the age. The devices of the intellect had divested God of his mystery and exposed him to the critical examination of philosophy. As Buber writes, God is no longer a personality to speak to but simply an idea, the immediate God of the patriarchs, Isaac, uh, Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, had been lost, and now the God of the philosophers, the God of intellectual systems, the God as an idea, even the absolute idea which Hermann Cohn had made him, had replaced the real living God. With the absolute God uh, gone, 
Each man fashions his own God according to the deep requirements of his psyche. Here I'm paraphrasing Jung. Uh, or each man is considered free to authenticate his own existence. Sartre, if you studied your uh, uh, existentialism, you'll know what I'm speaking about. In other words, this is an age where the notion of the mystery of God, the experience enveloped in walking into a synagogue or a church or anywhere, or feeling God in the mystery of nature has now been lost as intellectual systems somehow try to overcome um, uh, the notion of a, a non-rational God. So that's the first essay I want to refer to by way of introduction. The second one is much more simple, okay? So the first essay is a kind of essay, a meditation on a philosopher written by another philosopher, okay? And whether you get the idea of, uh, of what he's doing there, just remember that phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as opposed to the God of the scholars and philosophers. But here's a second story. And then basically what you've got to do with Buber, you can't just talk about his ideas. You have to s somehow refer to life, to life experiences. Uh, and as you'll see, I'm going to do that, even though it's, I I'm kind of inhibited because I don't know you all that well. But nevertheless, I, you have to personalize to make this, th this uh, thinker uh, come to life in a meaningful way. But here is still his story, not my story. In another essay, he talks about going to give a lecture in some outskirt place, uh, outs on the outskirts of Berlin, uh, before a community of workers. Um, the, the formal lecture is called, and I'm surprised he had an audience, Religion and Reality. Um, after giving this very philosophical uh, uh, discussion, uh, a worker raises his hand and says, a very simple guy, I have had the experience that I do not need the hypothesis God in order to be quite at home in the world. What had been, as Buber mentions, a casual exchange of minds became an issue of urgency. And here I quote Buber. It came to me that I must shatter the security of his Weltanschauung, his worldview, through which he thought of a world in which one felt at home. Buber then proceeds to argue the inadequacy of knowledge, the imprecision of language, the limitation of our experience and comprehension. If all is unsure, Buber adds, if the world is not the place where man can feel at home, who was the being that gave this world which had become so questionable its foundation? In other words, he argues with a whole series of proofs trying to prove uh, that there is a God. The worker was overwhelmed. He's like, I'm going to take on this philosopher. So he says, thank you, I agree. And he sits down really quickly. <laughs> but Buber rebukes himself. He had won only an argument. He had proven to him that is the worker the merit and significance of the God of the philosophers. But, quote, had I not rather wished to lead him to the other, him who Pascal called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, him to whom one calls thou. All right, remember that word. It is not enough to locate God, who is principle, foundation, criteria, or value. God as such is only an object, manipulated and used, thought and conceived, and can be easily discarded. 
the argument was won, but the conversion had not really taken place. I must say, even before I met uh, Gene Borowitz, um, I had somehow kind of imbibed that idea. Uh, I began my career as a teacher at the age of 15, 16 in Young Judea camp. I was a Young Judean. I don't know if any of you, yeah, 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 all right. Um, I rose up all the ranks. I started out, you know, in the lowest of the long, and I was the director of the camp before I, I quit my 11 summers in, uh, in Tel Yehuda, which was the national camp of Young Judea. Barryville, New York, good for you, all right. So we're having a connection here. Um, but I learned one thing. I used to, so I, we, were, we were teenagers giving sichot to even younger teenagers. You know, sichot were under the apple tree. We would do all of Jewish history. I mean, it was, this was our, we, it was our learning experience and our, our, our first serious pedagogy experience. And I got pretty good at it, and I could sort of wow them right over the place, but, um, I learned that if you really want to be effective as an educator, what you need to do is sort of create a one-on-one -on -one relationship. Uh, that I had won the argument, but I had not made the conversion. Uh, and thus, I, you know, sitting with one kid and talking to them, even about, you know, sports or whatever, was a much more effective means at my disposal. Uh, and I learned that, and it's no coincidence, as you will see, that Buber was a professor also uh, partially in the School of Education at the Hebrew University, and he wrote a great deal about pedagogy. Uh, and I think of that all the time, and I will come back uh, to an example from my own life in just a second. So Buber is preoccupied with relocating the absolute as a living subject rather than an object. Forgive me, I don't like to look at notes so much, but I, I, I want this language to be precise. The eclipse of God, the language that he uses, precedes or accompanies, uh, it follows, excuse me, accompanies the eclipse of man. Before one can recover God, the first requirement is the revival of spontaneity, of self-awareness, and openness of human beings before the world. The essential condition of our time, as he was writing, of course, uh, in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, um, and perhaps our time as well, as a revival uh, is, is a sense of alienation and divestment, the absence of God and the incompleteness of man, as he put it. The problem of human beings is not merely that they don't know the world, but they know it insufficiently. Buber done, thus defines a twofold experience. Notice, by the way, just parenthetically, that if I were to treat other Jewish thinkers, I would begin with their notion of Judaism, of the Jewish people, uh, of their idea of a Jewish God. What I'm doing right now, I didn't mention the word Jewish yet, right? I'm speaking about the human condition. Notice that Buber starts with the universal condition of all human beings. That's why, of course, he was so popular and meaningful uh, within a larger population of people living with, particularly within Western civilization. Uh, so we have not, we are going to speak about him as a Jewish philosopher, but we begin with the universal and then move slowly to the particular. Right now, the universal, twofold nature. As some of you know, Buber wrote a very famous book called I Thou. In that book, he defined in a very poetic way, you just can't read the book from start to finish. It is like, very much like poetry, 
and needs to be digested very slowly and thought about. Um, there are two folds relationship with the, with the world. One is called I-it, the other is called I-thou. I-it, a relationship to objects. When we use the word experiencing, analyzing, using, we are speaking about an I-it relationship. It is the dominant way in which we relate to others, objects in the world. In our own day, we address each other through the I-it relationship. On the other hand, there is a second kind of relationship with the world that human beings uh, engage with. It is called the I-thou relationship. I-thou is a means of approach. And here again, I'm very careful with the language that I'm, I'm using. Uh, a means of approach surpassing handling and manipulation. One greets merely because the other is other, who also approaches to be greeted and returns the greeting. A creature greeted without reserve. These are all, this is all Bulbarian language. The mute glance of understanding. The reception of the other on the basis of our own uniqueness. The I-thou dialogue, Buber says, is that state of betweenness, of interpersonal relation, which is most completely human. It is defined against the background of existential incompletion. Now these are all words, and words may have some kind of meaning that we can impart, but I need to concretize this in terms of life experience. So you'll forgive me if I talk for a moment about personal experiences that illustrate, for me at least, the notion of these twofold relationships. First relationship I've kind of referred to already and I want to come back to now in a more direct way. And that is something I've been doing for, as I said, 45 years or more. Uh, if I include all the years in Young Judea, I would have to add on a whole bunch more years. Um, and that is uh, the teacher-student relationship. You know how it works, particularly in Ivy League universities. You get students in class, uh, I, before I taught at Penn, I taught at Yale. Um, you get students in class who are more or less valedictorians, all of them, when they came out of high school. Um, and I mean, it's an enormous privilege to teach kids like this. I mean, they're really quite bright and super, but they're d really competitive. Uh, and they are looking at each other, and for the first time, they're realizing that the students next to them are just as smart as they are. Uh, and it's a revelation. Um, but the relate, but it, it's a very interesting. If you were to define the teaching relationship only on the I it level, so what's going on here? You're, you come in and you lecture, you know, every Tuesday, Thursday, or Monday, Wednesday, or Friday, whatever it is, uh, and they come in. Uh, it used to be they would take notes. Now they're typing away uh, on their computers. Uh, some professors don't allow it, but I, you know, I, I. I I trust the students that are seeing class, that they're not doing email or looking at porno pictures or something else. Uh, they're actually taking notes. Um, and uh, where do you have a profession where every word that comes out of your mouth, they're writing down as if it's God's word, you know? I mean, it obviously is, uh, if it's coming out of my mouth. Uh, but they're sitting there, I mean, what, where would you get? I mean, 
you know, you don't make an enormous amount of money being a professor, but it's an enormous <coughs> ego trip, isn't it? I mean, you got large uh, students uh, classes sitting there, and they're all, you know, eating up every word, uh, and they're smiling at your jokes. They're even laughing at them. Uh, and they come to your office, and they're all very nice to you. And whether they bring you an apple or not, you know, uh, they're, they're more or less going through this kind of gesture. Why? Because from the perspective of the student, uh, so from the perspective of the teacher, it's an extraordinary experience to be able to pontificate, to stand up in front of them and to uh, teach them all your great wisdom, which is so important that they have to know everything, you know, for the exam. Uh, from their perspective, what are they doing? They're using you for their own knowledge. But what they're really doing, the brightest are trying to get to know you. Uh, now, what I do, of course, trying to uh, follow through on my Buberian kind of pedagogy, is that despite the size of the class, I make sure I meet with every student for an hour. I insist they come to class, and then I play, you know, either Jewish geography or Christian geography, depending on what, uh, what they are or, or something else. Um, and I just want to get to know who they are. And they're really fascinating kids. I mean, you really want to uh, find out about them. And you try to engage in a kind of personal experience. You know, it's, it's tokenism. I can't spend the whole semester hanging out with them. I, I actually was once teaching in Berlin. Uh, and there was a large class. And there was a real, you know, a very stiff professor, you know, German professor that was next to me. Um, and at the end of the third class, I said, OK, now we're all going to go to the local they drink young in Germany. Uh, we're all going to go to the bar, and I'm going to buy you a, a beer with my colleague over here. And he looked at me like I was absolutely crazy. I was inviting his students to drink with him. Um, but I know I try in that respect. But clearly, they're coming to see me. Why? Because they need letters of recommendation to get into graduate school. So it's a user uh, relationship as well. I know that they're, you know, you'll forgive the expression, kissing ass. Uh, can I say that in this synagogue, Benet Sedek? I'm sorry. Uh, but that's what they're doing, basically. Um, and, you know, I know that I'm trying to build a human relationship with them, but it's really not possible. On the other hand, of course, so that's the I-it relationship. In other words, that's, again, the way most of us relate to the world at large, to the people that service us, to the people, our business associates, uh, to, to the relationship of people. Even, even our loved ones, we often use them for our own purposes and so on, even when we're not aware of that. Um, and then, of course, there's the I-thou. We don't always function in the I-thou, but there are moments when, uh, particularly the student relationship over the years, there are students, particularly my graduate students, I have 18 doctoral students around the country. Uh, they, they, you know, I, I, they, they are my children, uh, in addition to my own children and my grandchildren. They are very special children. Um, when, uh, two or three years ago, uh, um, they had a big evening for me at Penn as I stepped down from running this big institute, um, all 18 were there and we have a picture together. I prize that picture more than any other picture. Uh, it is remarkable to see their growth and development and their teaching abilities and there is something about that relationship that goes way beyond the I-it. Uh, I always made fun of them. I think, you know, the I-it relationship is particularly practiced in the graduate level. When you're in graduate school, man, you are pumping the professor and bothering him every hour of the night and asking him to write recommendations and so on. It goes on and on and on. I have one now that almost every week I'm going to get another letter from her asking me to write here and write it there and do this and read that and so on. So it is very much an I-it relationship. But in the end, you've built a human relationship where you've given them something and they've given you so much back. 
uh, and all of a sudden something very deep uh, transpires. Not always. Uh, I can't remember all the names of the students for the past 45 years. Um, but I actually have had experiences like this where um, someone will come up to me. There was actually in the synagogue in Tustin, a woman uh, drove down from Los Angeles. She had been my student in 1978. I, I didn't remember her, but she came. So something happens in this experience which is, which is magical, which is mysterious. The other obvious relationship is the relationship between friends. Uh, we uh, who have close friends are very privileged in life. Uh, we know lots of people. We have lots of relationships. Uh, in the academic world, I know just about everybody in my own field, uh, but I don't have uh, either relationships with most of them. But a few I do, uh, not only my students, uh, and friends that uh, I can, you know, after so much time, we can be sitting in the same room and something transpires that is absolutely remarkable. Even a glance of understanding, even a conversation without words, something has happened that breaks through the ice. Then there are, of course, of times when you know, you're having a crisis and you run to a friend uh, or a loved one and you want to pour out your heart, but that friend is having a bad day and is thinking about something else and you're not clicking, you're not connecting, right? In other words, what I'm trying to say about the I-it and the I-thou relationship is that it, it, it is fleeting. In other words, we live most of the time in the I-it relationship. But life is not full unless we experience the I-thou as well. And sometimes we experience it, or when we experience it, it is a high. It is something that turns us on. Let me first use Buber's language. Um, no, 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 I'm, or that, uh, well, let me just read the first line. When one is able to know man, he is ready to know God. In other words, if we can find that relationship in terms of other human beings, then uh, we are ready to know God. In other words, the analogy is the human relationship allows us to understand the relationship with the divine. What I wanted to add in terms of this fleeting relationship, I wanted to give you one more example. And you forgive me for getting too personal, uh, but I can't help myself, this is just a good one. Um, when I met my wife 47 years ago, um, there was a relationship, you know, but it didn't last for 47 years straight. I didn't feel it every day I get up in the morning. I mean, some would say that, but I don't. Uh, particularly when my wife says, David, take out the garbage. <laughs> That's not an I-thou relationship at that moment, you know, you understand. But what is the two relationships in relationship to each other? The fact that I once encountered that I-thou relationship with the person that I love, and I live with the hope and expectation that I-thou relationship will return. In other words, the rest of the time I live in the I-it relationship as, as most human beings do. Experiencing, uh, exploiting, taking advantage of, uh, enjoying, those are all I-it words. But ultimately, sitting next to me where I will glance at her and so on, I don't want to sound too ridiculous here, um, but you get the idea. In other words, uh, this is a very, as you see, this is a very unique lecture that I give. I don't usually talk this personally. But you can't talk about Buber any other way. Now, let's talk about God. Or let's talk to God, as Buber would say, not about God. Each thou, in other words, the I thou, each thou is a glimpse through to the eternal thou. The eternal thou is present in every particular thou, but only under its aspect of incompletion. 
God, too, is to be encountered directly as a person. Think of God as a person, no longer as an idea, as a thought, as a reflection. To know how to talk to God rather than about him. To meet the world, and here I'm quoting Buber exactly, with the fullness of being, and you shall meet him. If you believe, love. Buber's, one of Buber's favorite analogies is the analogy of the flower. Uh, you don't see it so much here in California, but you know, in Philadelphia where there's snow and cold and so on, well, you've had your share of bad weather. You don't see flowers in January. So you wait until March when they start coming out on the you know, little ones on the grass and then all of a sudden big ones you know, coming out in April or May. There's something about the seasons of the year, right, of appreciating the budding of a flower. Have you ever looked, you see, you can have also an eye-thou relationship with nature, with a tree, with a flower. Buber's analogy of looking at the flower and getting caught up and saying, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Life is good, right? And then, of course, you can analyze the flower more carefully and start pull it, pulling away its petals and dissecting it to the point where it becomes nothing. In other words, uh, if you analyze the flower, you have lost that sense of the I-thou. But the I-thou in terms of nature is also a possibility. Or think of you who are artistic of a work of art, or an art museum, or creating your own art, or music. These are all relationships that you have with life that you can encounter uh, uh, by way, via the I-thou relationship. Uh, God, therefore, can be understood this way. Uh, Jean Borowitz used to speak about um, God tapping you on your shoulder, and I used to snicker under my breath. What do you mean, God tapping me on my shoulder? What, what does that mean? Um, ultimately, as Abraham Joshua Heschel would put it, the, what I'm trying to convey to you is ineffable. It can't be described in words, because words attempt to, what you're describing is an I-it relationship, is an, is an object, right, not a subject. But nevertheless, the analogy, the fact that we have learned to love other human beings, the fact that this is the richest experience of our life, gives us a way, a, a means, a, a direction in how to face the divine, says Buber. And thus the I-thou experience, the I-thou encounter, not to use the word experience, becomes alive. Again, only fleetingly, not constantly. You don't live on the I-thou relationship. But again, you live with the memory of its past and the expectation and hope that it will return. And that dialectic between I, it, and I, thou is the very essence of our humanity. Now, that's half the, the talk. But the other half is to make an argument that what Buber has described as a human experience is also a Jewish experience, and that Buber was a Jewish philosopher. And what I want to do for the rest of the time now is to argue that Buber saw this understanding of religion embodied most directly within Judaism, within Jewish culture. And I want to talk both about his thinking about Judaism and his biography. What is very clear is that he lived in Germany for many years. He was part of a circle of intellectuals surrounding Hermann Kohn and others. He was in dialogue and constant interaction with uh, Gershon Sholem, 
both, uh, as Shalom have mentioned in many of my other lectures, uh, particularly the ones on Kabbalah, uh, and both of them made Aliyah and then came to Israel, and they both taught at the Hebrew University, and they were both in dialogue with each other, and Sholem bitterly attacked uh, uh, Buber over several points, which we'll talk about in a second. They're obviously very different. Sholem was more the historian, and Buber was more the theologian, uh, but nevertheless, um, he was part of this cultural world that emerged within the context of the end of the 19th and early 20th century, a very rich culture for Jews living in Germany, and particularly that German Aliyah that in the first decades of the 20th century made its way to Israel, and they lived in Rechavia, you know, the part of the German area of Jerusalem. Uh, and as you will see, many of them had very clear ideas about what Zionism and Judaism was all about, and we'll talk about that momentarily. The Jewish, for Buber, the Jewish relationship, the Jewish people's dialogical relationship with God is the covenant in Hebrew, Brit. It is not confined to Judaism, of course, but as Buber writes, I am certain that no other community of human beings have entered with such strength and fervor into this experience as have the Jews. Buber's Judaism can be exemplified in one, two, three, four directions. In other words, four facets of his Jewish identity I want to speak about. The first is his love and appreciation of the Bible. Buber was a commentator on the Bible. And if you want to read some of his works, pick up, for example, the book Moses, you see how he writes a commentary on the Bible. Like I Thou, his writing is very much poetic, as I said, but it is more than that. It is an attempt, as much as he can, as a writer, to convey and uh, to create, to, e to erect an I Thou relationship with his reader. So reading I Thou is not like reading any other book. You are reading something which is going to keep repeating itself, uh, enter from different vantage points but try to create some kind of, of interaction with you that is beyond simple, simply a reader response to an author. Whether that works or not, you really have to work at it. It's not an easy book to read. Similarly, his biblical exegesis, his writing on the Bible, also has a certain direction which is unlike any other. I should also tell you that Buber's closest colleague until he died was Franz Rosenzweig, also a religious existential philosopher in many ways, they shared a great deal. I will come to in a minute how they disagreed very strongly, and this made an enormous impression upon Jewish thought. But I also want to tell you that they worked together until Rosenzweig died of a crippling disease on a translation of the Bible to create that dialogical relationship, to bring to the surface the interaction between the Jewish people and God in a way that was not about a literal rendering or a scientific critical rendering, but something much more than that to create some kind of relationship with the text as you read the text. Uh, Everett Grendler years later tried to convey that same spirit in his English translation of their text, but it was originally done in German and it is one of the brilliant translations of the 20th century. Let me give you an illustration of Buber's exegesis. The word teshuvah is critical. Teshuvah, of course, aseret yemei teshuvah, the 10 days of repentance. We usually translate the word teshuvah repentance, right? 
It's about the high holy days, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and we use the word, and, we, and Jews, of course, enter the synagogue on Yom Kippur to seek repentance from God. But what is critical for um, Buber is the literal translation. Teshuvah comes from the root lashuv, to return. It is as if you had turned your back on God and the idea of repentance is to return directly to face him head on. And thus teshuvah is literally turning, not repentance. It is turning to face the divine turning to encounter something that is beyond yourself, the I-Thou relationship. That's the real meaning of Teshuvah for, uh, for Martin Buber. Or one other example. In the burning bush that Moses hears God's, and God uh, asks, uh, Moses asks God his name. The answer that is given in the text is Eyeh Asher Eyeh, which translation, anybody know Hebrew here can translate that? I will be what I will be. Ah, some Hebraists in this room. Um, not for Buber. Not I am that I am or I will be what I will be. But here is Buber's translation. I shall be there as I shall be there. That is, you need not conjure me for I am here. I am with you. You cannot learn to meet me. You meet me when you meet me. Again, that's a very Buberian translation of that word. So clearly one dimension of his Jewish identity is his particular relationship with the text and to read the entire relationship, not only between the individual patriarchs and God, but the entire community as a whole, the covenantal relationship as a dialogical relationship between God. So Buber has rethought covenantal theology in terms of the dialogical relationship. The second example of Buber's Jewishness is his particular relationship to a mystical, pietistic movement of the 18th century called Hasidism. Uh, one of my lectures earlier was on the Baal Shem Tov uh, and his opponent, the Gaon Elijah Vilna. This is a remarkable movement that emerges in the 18th century. It has many explanations. I won't even try to enter into that. Uh, in that lecture on the Baal Shem Tov, I spoke about Gershon Sholem's understanding of Hasidism uh, and, uh, the, uh, and other approaches and so on. Uh, this movement, uh, of course, caught the fancy of thousands of Jews, particularly in southern Poland, Podolia, Volonia. Uh, it eventually invaded uh, the northern part of Eastern Europe, Shnei Zalman of Ladi, and of course, it still remains with us in Orange County in the form of Chabad. Uh, and Hasidism, of course, is still a very powerful movement both in Israel, uh, in Brooklyn, and everywhere else uh, in one form or another. Um, what is interesting about Buber, Rosenzweig as well, but particularly Buber, was in discovering this Eastern European Jewishness. He was a Yecker, he was a German Jew, you know, he, he spoke German. It was his native language. He wrote mostly in German until he started writing in Hebrew and then later on in English. Um, to rediscover the ancient sage, the authentic sage. Now this, of course, Hasidism has a profound impact upon modern Jewish thinkers. Uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel himself was a, what came from a Hasidic family and so on. But Buber, although his grand grandfather was a scholar of Midrash, an authentic rabbinic, he came from relatively assimilated home. And therefore, in discovering Hasidism, he was discovering something that would somehow inspire him 
would turn him on, would provide an emotional response to being Jewish. Buber devoted his life to translating Hasidic stories. This was the form of communication of the Hasidic Rebbe who would tell stories to his flock. And through these personal stories, what I was trying to do in my feeble way just a few minutes ago, to try to engage them in a personal encounter. Aha, says Buber, the tzaddik, the Rebbe, in, and his relationship to his flock is a relationship of I thou. It is a relationship of creating this organic community. It is a relationship of authenticity in a world which is now filled with academic ideas, uh, with that intellectual world which has robbed us of the feeling of authentic feeling and emotion which is part and parcel of Judaism. Shalom criticized uh, Buber for a number of reasons why, with respect to Hasidism. It's very interesting, he has an essay called Buber's Approach to Hasidism, in which he argued that he was imposing his I-thou relationship on Hasidism and it wasn't exactly the same as he understood it. The Hasid also relates to the natural world. The Hasid also relates to other human beings. So Buber was finding in this, aha, here is the classic example of the I-thou relationship in the world of Judaism as a whole. And of course, Sholem was criticizing that. He was also arguing that he, you were only looking at one kind of of genre of literature that Hasidim wrote. Yes, they wrote stories, but they also wrote academic tomes. They also wrote serious commentaries, and you are ignoring them and not considering them in your analysis. And I guess from an academic point of view, Shalom was right, but of course, Buber was not an academic in that sense. He was a theologian. He was trying to understand the meaning of life, and therefore, historical criteria might not be so relevant in understanding Hasidism. In any case, Hasidism became a resource for a spiritual revival. And we still have and are indebted to Buber's translations into German of these wonderful Hasidic stories, which ultimately have been translated uh, into English as well and are available if you're interested in reading how Buber conveys Hasidic stories. And now I come to two final areas. Uh, I'm sort of unaware. Well, I'm going to go on for just about 10 minutes and I'm going to end. Uh, so bear with me, I probably have gone on too long already, but let, me, but let me finish this as completely as I can. First, I want to talk about uh, Buber's relationship to Zionism. Um, I had given a text out, I don't think it was, it was, it was printed, right? Or you do have it, some of you? Um, if you do, uh, it is an essay called Hebrew Humanism. Uh, it was published in 1942. Um, and its addressee, in many respects, was David Ben-Gurion. There is another essay uh, in my packet, which I'm actually, it's going to come out of a lecture that I'm going to give, I think, tomorrow night. I want to mention it to you. Uh, you don't have it, uh, but it is an extraordinary. Buber engaged in several very interesting debates, which are classic debates, which I love to teach my students. One of them uh, is a series of exchanges between Hermann Cohn that a neo-Kantian philosopher and Buber. Buber is a young man, about 20 years younger, and he takes him on and arguing that essentially the notion that Judaism can find itself uh, like dew spread across uh, you know, a, a field, that this is the place of Jews in Germany. Buber challenged Hermann Cohn to say, the only place we can have an impact and bring about the Messianic era is in Israel. So here's a classic debate between the Zionist uh, and 
the reform uh, uh, thinker uh, who is committed to life in the diaspora. Of course, looking at it now, this was long before the Holocaust. One can appreciate, you know, uh, the terms of the debate and, and, and what, what is the aftermath. But clearly then, this was one of the great debates. How would Buber, the young man, challenge Hermann Cohn on the most vital issue of the time, Zionism versus living in the diaspora, being uh, a light unto the nation, or as early Reformed Jews put it, uh, this was the mission of Israel. In other words, he was challenging the whole theology of Reformed Judaism that our purpose is to sort of offer a kind of intellectual uh, and, and moral purpose to the universe to bring about a better world. And therefore, we can only do this within the diaspora. But of course, Buber argued that only in Israel, as an organic community, can we be a light unto the nations. So this is one of the great classic debates. The other debate with respect to Zionism, and I, I'm going to give you, offer you one more debate right after that, is of course this essay, Hebrew Humanism, and his debate with, uh, with David Ben-Gurion. Just to quote just a few lines from this text, uh, there is a wonderful book, if you're interested in Zionist thought, which is a classic Bible on the subject by Arthur Hertzberg called The Zionist Idea. And the text is, is in that anthology. It's a wonderful anthology of Jewish thought. Uh, and in my lecture tomorrow night, I'll be talking about three other Zionist thinkers uh, from that anthology. I am setting up Hebrew humanism in opposition to that Jewish nationalism, which regards Israel as a nation like unto other nations and recognizes no task for Israel save that of preserving and reasserting itself. But no nation in the world has this as its only task, or just as an individual who wishes merely to preserve and assert himself leads an unjustified, meaningless existence, so a nation with no other aim deserves to pass away. By opposing Hebrew humanism to a nationalism which is nothing but empty self-assertion, I wish to indicate that at this juncture, the Zionist movement must decide either for national egoism or national humanism. If it decides in favor of national egoism, it too will suffer the fate which will soon befall all shallow nationalism, the nationalism which does not set the nation a true supernatural task. If it decides in favor of Hebrew humanism, it will be strong and effective among, uh, 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 among after shallow nationalism has lost all meaning and justification or it will have something to say and to bring to mankind. Israel is not a nation like other nations, no matter how much its representatives have wished it during certain years. And it goes on and on. I can't read the whole essay. Now, I won't comment uh, on this essay in terms of our present reality. I'll leave that for uh, rabbis that uh, are, have to do that all the time. I, I'm an academic that can run off to my ivory tower. Um, but clearly, uh, Buber, uh, was very provocative in the 40s and 50s. He believed in a binational state. He was part of a group of German Zionists who were very critical of the nationalism of Zionism already uh, in, uh, in the 40s, even before the creation of the State of Israel. Um, and he argued for a, a version of Judaism sounding very much like a Chadam, a kind of cultural Zionism, a spiritual Zionism, a need to create Essentially, Israel was to become an embodiment of the covenantial idea and a laboratory of human relationships, not only between Jews and Jews, but between Jews and Arabs. Um, his position was considered, quote, unquote, naive, impractical, stupid, 
uh, and so on and so forth. And to go back to why there weren't many people at his funeral in Israel, it had to do with his lack of popularity because of his views on Zionism. But I mention them here, uh, and clearly it is consistent with all the other theology I presented. The I-Thou relationship, the notion of covenant, and what Zionism is to be. It is not simply a national movement. It has to be a renewal, a moral and spiritual renewal of the Jewish people, a light unto the nations which will have universal implications. In reading that essay now, of course, uh, we are in a different planet perhaps, uh, but it is worth recalling that this was uh, a fundamental platform among the panorama of Zionist approaches during this period of time. And now I come to the final point, which is his position with respect to Jewish law and observance. In other words, the way I analyze all the Jewish thinkers in my class at Penn is to talk about God, Torah, and Israel. That is, that the God, uh, Torah is the issue of observance, the issue of mitzvot, the issue of commandments, and then finally Israel, of course, is what we talked about, uh, his attitude towards the Jewish people. So I come to this point, and here we are engaged in another classic debate within modern Jewish thought. And I wish I had the time to really go into it in great detail, but let me present it in only two minutes and then bring this to a close. Rosenzweig is his arch rival in this respect. And while both of them share the same view of God, share their own understanding of Judaism and its relationship to something that is spiritual, uh, Rosenzweig was about to convert to Christianity and rediscovered his Judaism on Yom Kippur Eve. I once gave a sermon on Yom Kippur where I said, you know, if Rosenzweig was sitting with us now, you know, would he have really done what he did? Would he have stayed a Christian or would he, did he return to Judaism? He was in a little shtibel in East Berlin. He, he rediscovered, again, Eastern European Jews, and he decided he found the authentic Jewish faith uh, as he saw it. But on this point, they debated. Uh, and I, I can't really go into the into detail. It begins with an essay um, which uh, Buber wrote in which he talked about reviving Jewish learning. Uh, Buber and Rosenzweig were very committed to an institution called the Lairhouse, which is, I think, basically what you guys got here, uh, a kind of learning for its own sake, uh, highest level but a commitment to Jewish life. It wasn't simply about academic learning. It was something much, much more than that. Um, and he gave a series of lectures about this notion of what Jewish learning is, of how to imbibe something that will somehow affect our whole lives, not simply our own minds. But Rosenzweig wrote a work called The Builders in which he challenged Buber and said, look, it's very nice that you say this, but let's move beyond the realm of learning to the realm of observance and commandments. What about the commandments? What about your relationship to 613, to how the rabbinic or the rabbis distill these remarkable commandments, these ritual commandments that transform our lives by doing these ritual acts, observing the Sabbath, keeping kosher, uh, putting on tefillin, all of these things which make Jews feel that they are Jews. And Buber's response in a series of letters, and I teach, actually teach these letters, they're quite remarkable, is the following, and here I even have a little language. Um, I do not repudiate law. I only find law inhibits an openness before the divine. It restricts the power of God. It limits the possibility of human encounter. Law turns thou into a formality of regulations, freezing the word and stopping the real meeting. 
Law becomes a retreat from God, a contentment with the devices of human inadequacy. Law is devised because men cannot risk the living freely with God. Law as a separate objective reality constantly tends to supplant vital contact with every living relation. To you, God, and here he speaks to Rosenzweig, is one who revealed himself once and no more. But to us, that is to Buber and his, who, those who think alike, he speaks out of the burning thorn bush of the present in the revelations of our innermost hearts. In other words, Buber believed that law as legislation could not be identical to personal commandment which is authenticated by a real encounter with God. I believe in commandments, but they need to come out of that personal eye-thou relationship. I can't simply uh, inherit all of these commandments that were passed down by generation and be turned on simply because they were given by our forefathers. And how does Rosenzweig respond? He says, yes, I recognize the difference between personal commandment and law, but it is the goal of the Jew to transform every law into a personal commandment. And how does one do that? By doing. Na'asev nishma. First you do, and then you will hear the message of the law. In other words, you must try. You must engage with the law. You must do it, even if you don't understand it, even if it is not rational. By doing, you create a certain relationship, a certain encounter with God. By doing, you see the world differently. Or to put it in Marshall McLuhan, remember Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message. The medium, of course, is the, is the, the mitzvot, the commandments. Uh, so Rosenzweig and Buber took it on, and they argued. And Buber was not convinced. I cannot make all of this law out there. So Buber remained more or less on the minimal level of observance, uh, very comfortable probably within a liberal reform community. Rosenzweig... Um, went the path of halakha. And for most conservative Jews, Rosenzweig was much more appealing over this particular point. D did he become an Orthodox Jew? Uh, when someone asked him, have you put on tefillin? He said, not yet. Uh, he was on the way, right? He was working on it. But he was trying to make laws into personal commandments by the doing. So this is a remarkable debate as well. Just like the Hermann Cohn-Buber debate is a classic debate in Jewish thought, uh, this is another one which is quite relevant. Uh, and you can see how uh, my students, many of them Orthodox Jews or conservative Jews or even Reformed Jews sitting in class, and also Christians uh, or non-Jews you know, or, or uh, Asians. I've, I've had all kinds over the years, uh, both at, at Penn and Yelna, and they, they take my course, believe it or not, somehow can relate. Uh, I once had a... Uh, a, a Taiwanese student come to me after class and she was crying at the end of my course on modern Jewish thought. Um, and I said, why are you crying? She said, I understand my mother much better after taking my course. And I said, how the hell did that happen? I, don't, I had no idea what was going on there. Uh, but you know, on some level, what we're talking about are human things, not just Jewish things. And certainly Buber as a human philosopher. So let me bring this to a whole. Clearly then, there were those who found Buber and the larger world the most appealing philosopher of modern Jewish thought in terms of his focus upon relationship. I mean, he spoke to a language of post-rational thinking. He spoke to a world of alienation, a world that needed other human beings. 
He spoke, he gave us a path in which one could discover the divine in one's life by the analogy of the human relationship. Uh, at the same time, uh, his views on Zionism were clearly uh, debated. Um, in the reality of the 1948 war and the subsequent wars that followed, uh, and particularly after 67, um, it was very hard for uh, Buber's approach of Arabs and Jews, of a dialogical relationship of Hebrew humanism to really have a resonance in the hard reality that Israel had become uh, and, uh, and the facts that were on the ground and what that meant and so on. Nevertheless, he remains a voice and a voice that uh, I constantly turn to um, and, uh, and clearly may perhaps in an ideal world, uh, his ideas still have some resonance and meaning. He also, of course, could not be accepted unilaterally by Jews who observed halakha, who observed Jewish law, because of his, I wouldn't call it antinomian, I've used that word when I was talking about Shabtai Tzvi, I, that, some of you who were at that lecture, uh, he, he's not against the law, but he, a metonomium, I would call him, there, there is a higher ideal beyond the law, and that is the personal interaction between human beings and God. But nevertheless, I hope I've given you something about a man and his thinking that is meaningful, inspirational, that suggests something about the depth and also the relevance of modern Jewish thinking to our own dilemmas uh, as Jews and as human beings. Thank you very much. And I guess I spoke about an hour, so I apologize for so long. Yeah. Uh, oh, so you, Rabbi, you'll tell me when, uh, when we should end. So I'll, I'll just call on some people. Yeah? Okay. My go. observation from once your remark and what I know about Uber, which is not that much. Uber apparently was more like in the prophetic tradition in that he felt a personal relationship with God. He felt that that was what was important whereas a lot of Jews have what he would describe as an I-it relationship with God, the idea of God or whatever. And if you, in, the, in the Psalms, one of the comments I made in the course that I took in the Psalms was, these people really feel they are talking to God. They're not just reciting a prayer. They are actually talking to God. It sounds to me like with Uber, he is suggesting that, that science and analytics have sort of destroyed that idea of a personal relationship with God. Good. Um, it's interesting you mentioned the Psalms. Um, so the few of you that have followed me throughout these lectures, I, I began with uh, Halevi and Maimonides. Uh, and I contrasted them, these two medieval thinkers. Um, and I began by their portraits of Abraham uh, Maimonides portrays Abraham as a kind of philosopher who was already cogitating in the womb when he was in diapers, you know, <laughs> sort of like some of our, uh, you know, grandchildren, we want to get them into Harvard or Stanford or whatever, you know, we're already reading, uh, you know, phonics with them, uh, like uh, my, my daughter-in-law, right, uh, at a very young age. Um, and, um, uh, but uh, Halevi uh, starts by quoting the book of Psalms. And he said, Abraham tasted God, quoting the psalm, Ta'amu uru'u et Hashem, taste and see that God, that, that there is a God. The word taste to describe God is a very sensual word. 
Uh, it is an experiential word. It is a word that has nothing to do with reason and cogitation and thinking. Uh, God is an idea. It is, it is indeed the I-thou relationship rather than the I-it. Um, so there is a long history here, beginning with Halevi, and then, of course, I gave another lecture on Hasidism and its opponents. So, again, worship versus intellect. So you see how the theme has sort of plays itself out in Jewish history. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, Hasidism, as we showed already, uh, influenced Buber profoundly. Uh, so you're absolutely right. I think your, your summary uh, encapsulates uh, what I said and what, what I think Buber says. Yes. I have two um, you always questions. Do. Yes. <laughs> One is um, when you're talking about Buber's I, thou, does he talk at all about the necessity of having an I, thou relationship versus an I, it relationship with oneself before one can know God? Um, because it seems like you, your lecture encompassed there being an outside person or an outside thing, but it seems to me that you'd need to have that, those same relationships with yourself, and you would need the I-thou relationship with yourself before you could know God. Sounds very Freudian, another Jewish <laughs> yes. Um, Does he talk about... I don't recall, that's a really interesting question, um, about having an I-thou relationship with oneself. Uh, but that certainly would, you know, be a certain, you know, kind of therapy in terms of before one can address the other, uh, one needs to learn how to address oneself. Um, I, I, I reflect on that one, uh, you know, in the phrase in Leviticus, um, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, but before you can love your neighbor, you need to love yourself. That's the same idea that you're talking about here. I don't, I don't I, it's possible that Buber speaks in those terms. I don't recall that. I think what he is concerned about mostly is a relationship with the other. And the other stimulates the self. The other is what, what transforms the self into, in, you know, and it's about a relationship with the world as a whole. It, of course, the self can also create a relationship, as we said, with nature, with art, with uh, music, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I don't recall that it begins there, although for other thinkers, obviously, uh, of, of a Freudian bent, of a psychological bent, that would seem to be the starting point. Well, yeah. but just from a simpler level, in Jewish, in Judaism, the belief is that we are made in God's image, or God made us in, in the image of Himself. So, in that sense, we are more like we are. We are a piece of God. We are a partnership with God. And, and I don't know if he got into that that component of it, where God's not a, a stranger. God is. Is within our hearts, within ourselves. Um, the other cheshbon hanefesh. So that's that's another. That's definitely a Jewish concept. In other words, so we can't be so far away from that concept. But the emphasis here is on relating to the outside, and that is what transforms the self. The yeah. other question I had had to do with his his disagreement with Cohen on the issue of German values being identical to Jewish, Jewish values. values, and I was trying to really understand what that meant as far as what the values were. But it seems like his, um, his opposition or resistance to that idea m is mirrored in his opposition to Zionism versus Jewish humanism, whereas he seems to be of the bent that, that a national belief system or, or a, a value system that people share as a nation is not consistent with the value system that people share as a religion. Is that also a consistent theme? Or yeah, no, way no, of I, I, at it? I, yes. Uh, although on that level, Hermann Cohen and uh, 
and Buber would have, would have agreed. In other words, what they agreed upon was they, they had a certain view of kind of how to build the messianic future. Uh, for uh, Hermann Cohn, coming out of classical reform Jewish thought, I mean, you have to go back to Abraham Geiger and a whole series of other thinkers that preceded him, that essentially the notion of Jews are unique in, in their moral power. Uh, we, uh, when I gave my lecture on Geiger, I've, I've talked about so many things in these uh, 18 lectures so far. Um, uh, I, I talked about uh, the notion of mission of Israel and the idea of separation of church and state, that these were particular ideas that emerged out of Reformed Judaism. Uh, but the idea that as an individual, we exist as Jews to be a witness to the world, to somehow, and he, there's a term in this text, and it's a wonderful text, about being the do, D-E-W, uh, in which we sort of water, we sort of uh, irrigate the entire world with our moral consciousness. That's what Judaism is about. And our role within German culture is to bring that moral perspective uh, in transforming the world. Uh, in one of my lectures, uh, I can't remember which it is, it's already a blur already, uh, I spoke about, I spent a lot of time now in Germany, and uh, in Hamburg, uh, uh, they are about to celebrate next year the 200th anniversary of Reformed Judaism, uh, and there's gonna be a big conference. Uh, Hamburg was the first Reformed temple in Germany, and the reason I mention this so quickly is because it's so illustrative of what I, of, of Hermann Kohn. Um, the edifice of the synagogue that was closed in 1937 still remains, and that's the first thing I took people when I showed them the, the, the rich heritage of, of Hamburg Jewry. This was a, a, ma a major spot where Eastern European Jews left to go to the New World. Uh, it was a, a site of the, of the conversos who came uh, in the 17th century, and it was the, it was the, it was the, the first temple of Reformed Judaism. So this temple still remains, and it is a quote from Isaiah, Beiti bayit my house is a house to all peoples. The universal message of Reformed Judaism standing there, and then in front is a monument with the Shoah, which says, remember the Shoah, and you see a, an ark that's, a Torah is ripped and it's on the ground. The juxtaposition, you know, is overwhelmingly uh, uh, powerful. Of, 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 you know, looking back at what happened, how Hermann's Cohn's view was so unrealistic and it was going to lead ultimately to devastation. But of course he couldn't know that and he saw himself, in other words, Jews were on the vanguard to bring this moral value. Buber took this idea and said, yes, it's the same idea. We share that same spiritual purpose. We are against national egotism and so on. In other words, Hermann Cohn even thought that this Jewish perspective would make Germany a humane and, uh, and moralistic uh, a culture. Um, but Buber said it's not going to happen that way. We need to create a community of people to, to embody those values. <coughs> and then we can uh, create uh, the, the, the moral foundations for, for the, the messianic age, et cetera, et cetera. So on that level, they were the same. <coughs> but you're right in seeing a thread. And certainly, Buber is consistent. He doesn't want Israel to simply be a national state. Uh, tomorrow night, uh, if any of you want to follow me down to Newport, um, I'm going to speak about Achad Amon Yaakov Klatskin. Klatskin believed that being a third-rate Switzerland, uh, no, forgive me, Switzerland's a cool country, I'm not going to, uh, a third-rate country in the Middle East, a normal country with criminals and prostitutes, etc., is all we care about. We simply want to liquidate the diaspora and create normalcy. <coughs> That's not Hoover's idea at all. Um, and, um, and in other words, you can see already the clash between these two worlds. 
But anyway, your questions are very good as usual, and I think it's time to end, right? Yeah, th okay. yes. <laughs> Thank you very much.